You definitely know about The Dig since you're listening to this podcast, and you probably know about Jacobin, which helps put out The Dig. But you might not know about Catalyst, a journal of theory and strategy. Capitalism is once again up for debate. Catalyst, a journal of theory and strategy, is a scholarly journal produced by Jacobin Foundation that aims to do everything it can to promote and deepen this conversation. Its focus is, as the title suggests, to develop a theory and strategy with capitalism as its target, both in the North and in the Global South. That's an ambitious agenda, but this is a time for thinking big. You can check out Catalyst's great essays, including contributions from scholars like Mike Davis, and subscribe and print for just $20 for an entire year by going to bit.ly slash digcatalyst. That's B-I-T dot L-Y slash digcatalyst. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. It was just the 20th anniversary of 9-11, and so also, of course, the anniversary of the War on Terror that Bush declared soon thereafter, a war that was continued by his Democratic successor, Obama, a technocrat who tried to make the War on Terror into something more sensible and sustainable, a candidate upon whom many had mistakenly projected their anti-war hopes. Our victory against terrorism won't be measured in a surrender ceremony at a battleship or a statue being pulled to the ground. Victory will be measured in parents taking their kids to school, immigrants coming to our shores, fans taking in a ball game, a veteran starting a business, a bustling city street, a citizen shouting your concerns at a president. This is a three-part series on the war on terror with journalist Spencer Ackerman, the author of Reign of Terror, How the 9-11 Era Destabilized America and Produced Trump. The forever wars unleashed murderous violence in wrecked countries across the world, very much including here in the United States. This is episode two, Obama, ISIS, and the Sustainable War. Look out for the last episode, episode three, which will cover Trump and Biden later this week. Before we get started, if you like and depend upon what we do here at The Dig, please take a quick moment to support us at patreon.com slash the dig. If you are listening right now and you've always been like, God, I should be supporting The Dig, but then you forget to... Now is a great time to do it. Hit pause for just a few minutes. Navigate to the URL patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly contribution. $5 a month. That's huge. $10 or more a month, we will send you a book or books in the mail, mug, tote bag. But since we don't pay well any episodes, our main pitch here is just, please, we depend on you, our listeners, to support us. We do have one more treat, though. Next week will be the first edition of our weekly newsletter, posted on our website and emailed to patrons starting next week. So contribute now, get our newsletter next week. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N 
dot com slash the dig. Oh, and Spencer would like me to correct the record from the last episode. He meant to say that according to recent numbers, 2,324 U.S. service members and 3,917 American contractors had died in Afghanistan. In our interview, Spencer accidentally added a zero to that latter number. Okay, here's Spencer Ackerman, the author of Reign of Terror, How the 9-11 Era Destabilized America and Produced Trump. A Pulitzer Prize and National Magazine Award-winning reporter, he currently writes the Forever Wars newsletter on Substack, which I'll link to in the show notes. Anti-war sentiment brought Democrats control of Congress in 2006. But as you write, quote, the Democratic agenda did not include withdrawal from Iraq, let alone abolition of the war on terror. Instead, elites in and out of uniform recast the overall war on terror not as Bush's theological crusade, but as a technocratic, salvageable struggle guided by the hard-won rationality of its veterans and practitioners. The language of emergency persisted, and for the first time, it was acceptable to openly discuss failure. But the prospect of failure became an argument for rebooting the war through escalating it, not for abandoning its wreckage. How did Democrats manage to metabolize growing anti-war sentiment in their base into their pursuit of what you call the capital S sustainable war from 2006 through the end of Obama's presidency. Obama, after all, was elected as an anti-war candidate of sorts, though, of course, a closer inspection reveals that his critique of the Iraq invasion was that it was a dumb war and that he advocated shifting U.S. troops from Iraq to Afghanistan. He even tried in 2008 to outflank Hillary Clinton by calling for strikes inside Pakistan. How did Democrats, as their base soured on the war, take that anti-war energy and turn it into a new model for the war on terror? The very short answer to your question is going to be the same as the very long answer to your question. It's Barack Obama. That in Barack Obama, the Democratic Party finally has the thing that it realized it needed and didn't have in 2004, which is an authentically popular figure who was vocally against the Iraq war from the beginning, but doesn't translate that opposition to the Iraq war into a broader critique of A, what's wrong with the war on terror and why it has to be abolished, and B, what's wrong with American foreign policy that the war on terror reflects that has to be abolished. And in this unique political figure of Barack Obama, you get a way to make the war on terror no longer this scary thing with like theological faith expected in it expressed like scarily and civilizationally that portrays endless war as kind of a Kennedy-esque virtue into something where Obama, like rational people who populate the security state, the intelligence community, the, the military, law enforcement, the State Department, and so forth, very often the people who brought abuses in the Bush era war on terror to light through Obama focusing on the atmosphere of like 
greatest true popular anger against a war on terror manifestation, which was, of course, the occupation of Iraq, which was absolutely that kind of true moral emergency. Because he was so capable and so unapologetic at doing that, that's also something I think gets kind of forgotten a bit about the first Obama candidacy, was that here's Hillary Clinton and others like trying to condescend to Obama. You know, someone who is wrong about the Iraq war is trying to condescend to someone who is right. And the Obama campaign is just absolutely not having it and recognizes that if it is going to win over Hillary Clinton, this is exactly the terrain it has to fight on. It has to defeat her here. On the terrain of the 3 a.m. phone call. Yeah, exactly. And Obama is extremely successful at that. And in that success starts showing that he won't construct this broader critique. Instead, he will embrace the practitioners who are trying to responsibly and with restraint calibrate the war on terror into a thing that avoids its deep um, and real excesses and instead focuses only on those remaining threats that it has to confront. And are you a Lord of the Rings guy? Yeah, not like one of the deep heads who's read like what is it like the Silmarillion or the Simil the Silmarillion? I, yeah, but I, you know, I've I've read the the Standard Four. So like the scene that <laughs> I always think of when I think of Obama right as he's on the cusp of victory is right after the battle um, of the First Age that brings together the coalition of elves and men that defeats Sauron. Sauron's gone. And the only remaining task is for uh, Elrond, King of the Elves, and Isildur, King of the Men of the West, uh, to take the instrument of Sauron, the one ring of power, and throw it into the fires of Mount Doom and, and, and win forever, that the enemy will finally be vanquished. And Sauron is gone, of course, and Isildur goes into the belly of Mount Doom, sees the, the fires of the lava beneath it, holds the ring. Elrond, his boy, uh, is nearby screaming, like, throw it into the fire, like, get rid of it. And Isildur just looks at it and goes, this is a tool. It's not necessarily a weapon. In the hands of someone like Sauron, it accomplishes great evil. But if I wield it, what great things would I be able to do? And instead of destroying the ring, the war on terror, he puts it on his finger and disaster foretold begins to manifest. Obama embraces people who are in counterinsurgency circles in Iraq. Um, They have obviously like competing interests as well as competing cultures, but the counterinsurgents around General David Petraeus, nearly all of them are people who I've interviewed over the years, sometimes at quite great length to include Petraeus himself, kind of recognize that like the election of Obama, instead of their preferred The person they're far more comfortable with is their patron, John McCain. But they recognize that like McCain is toast, Obama is an inevitability, and their task now is to shape the limits of Obama's constraints of the war on terror and, you know, in particular, get him to like draw out uh, the withdrawal from Iraq um, and hopefully leave a residual force. And to recapitulate the Iraq surge ultimately in Afghanistan. In Afghanistan. So in addition to metering out the scope of Obama's um, retrogressions of the war on terror, which are, which are very, very small from the outside and circumscribed, in order to accomplish the refinement 
of the war on terror in a post-Iraq context, very quickly Obama finds that the mechanisms he requires for a less conspicuous but sustained war are the CIA, the NSA, and the military, and particularly elite forces within the military. At this point, Obama has a direct disincentive, if not outright disinterest, to either pursuing any form of accountability for all of the relentless assaults, not just on human life, but on the Constitution that these agencies um, and entities have accomplished, but also of a faith in them to ultimately execute a lower level, less conspicuous war on terror that does not stay at a low level very long at all. And through a belt of process that Obama wraps the counterterrorism enterprise in, it is able to convince itself that is operating in a more restrained and more lawful way when it in fact, it is just operating in a more bureaucratically routinized way that is not in any sense more lawful and is certainly not in any sense more moral. Libya was exemplary both of the sprawling war-making authority granted to the presidency and also the fact that the president still insisted on acting outside of and beyond that authority. And then came the attack in Benghazi and the just utterly bizarre political spectacle that followed. You write, quote, in the process, Benghazi itself became the debacle, not the Libya war. Meanwhile, Gaddafi's overthrow helped spread Islamist militancy south into the Sahel. And this all provided not an opportunity for any sort of reflection on the wisdom of U.S. policy, but instead, on the one hand, this bizarre Benghazi sideshow perpetrated by the right wing, and on the other hand, yet another front in the war on terror. How did the politics surrounding the intervention in Libya reflect and propel the politics surrounding the war on terror at the time? The way that Libya becomes part of the war on terror is not the invasion of Libya, not the the 2011 bombing campaign that Barack Obama pursues lawlessly. It becomes part of the war on terror in 2004 when Muammar Gaddafi, who's looking for um, some opportunity for rapprochement with the United States, decides that it's going to take its WMD capability in the aftermath of of the Iraq war and kind of give Washington a win um, in exchange for rapprochement, sanctions relief, the ability to sell its oil again and so on. And what it really offers isn't that at all. What it really offers is a brand new partnership with the CIA, where it will perform a whole lot of torture on the CIA's behalf against people it already wants tortured and can portray as being like loosely in some sense affiliated with Al-Qaeda and like no one's really interested in looking at that too closely. And just as an aside, this is part of the CIA's extraordinary rendition program beyond the 119 people disappeared into CIA black site prisons, much larger numbers, perhaps far, far larger numbers, were handed over to Arab intelligence forces to be tortured and interrogated on our behalf. And something just to note about that real quickly is we don't know how many people. These really, really, really were disappearances. 
we have no idea of the true scope of extraordinary rendition, even pre-9-11 rendition. This is an absolute atrocity and an atrocity that was very successfully kept from history. And we should never forget that. So Libya becomes part of the war on terror. Literally the first time I've interviewed Joe Biden in his Senate office after he got off a 13 hour flight from the Libyan desert where he was like super jazzed about just having hung out in the de- in Gaddafi's tent. <laughs> wow. Like it's fucking weird. I was 24 years old. Um anyway, the Arab Spring happens and Gaddafi's hold on power is very seriously imperiled as the result of his extensive misrule. And he gives a speech in which like he threatens to go house to house in Benghazi killing people um in order to stop the rebellion. Like we mentioned before, an element, an undercurrent in liberal post-Cold War circles to justify American power, um, to give American power um, a a rationale that looks universalist and looks universally beneficial to humanity is called the responsibility to protect. The responsibility to protect is American exceptionalism. Like there's not, I don't want to spend too much time like litigating this, but in the way that American except in the exact way that American exceptionalism holds that it gets to right the world's wrongs, um, so too does the responsibility to protect hold that the United States, preferably with the United Nations, not necessarily, um, but with its allies, um, enforce standards of civilized behavior against you know mass atrocity. It's the Samantha Power face of American empire. Exactly. I'd like to point out that like when. The United States spends 20 years killing on a conservative estimate 900,000 people, according to the Brown University Costs of War Project's most recent estimate. No one talks about the United talks about anyone else around the world having a responsibility to protect the fucking world from the United States. No one says that about, you know, when when Samantha Power writes her book A Problem from Hell, which full disclosure as a, a college student was extremely influential on me. It doesn't include, say, the United States's dirty wars um, in Latin America, which are so recent. Um, you know, it doesn't include America's role in Operation Condor. It doesn't include America's role in a genocidal campaign, an eliminationist campaign in the mid-1960s in Indonesia. Right. The responsibility to protect is only things that the United States does to other people. This time, this was the first real responsibility to protect war. Um, You can read an excellent book by Samuel Moyne of Yale. came out uh, the week that we're recording this called Humane, uh, which goes into in a lot more um, detail and with a lot more analytical rigor um, than I can here or that Reign of Terror provides about how the work of and the the logic of human rights uh, became uh, not a mechanism to restrain and end war, but an adjunct through which uh, America fights its wars um, and justifies its wars. That becomes a war in Libya that Obama is half committed to, that the military really dislikes from Defense Secretary Bob Gates on down. We get the first time in the war on terror, the only time, I think, in the war on terror where a defense secretary testifies to Congress 
that the United States is just carrying out too many wars and like should probably think about concluding some before starting <laughs> some new ones. This is the fucking defense secretary of the United States saying this, you know, like he's like he's like our eyes are really bigger than our stomach here, guys. <laughs> yeah, like this is like this is George W. Bush's second defense secretary who stays on in the Obama administration saying this. But no, the war happens. It's an air war um, with support given to Libyan rebels who spend the best part of 2011 conducting uh, basically eventually successfully killing Gaddafi, lynching him in public, which Hillary Clinton celebrates. So, I mean, that is the land of unconfirmed. Yes, we came. We saw he died. <laughs> Did it have anything to do with your visit? No. I would find out later and report for Wired in 2011, the epicenter of U.S. drone strikes was neither Iraq, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Yemen, or Somalia. It was Libya. There were more drone strikes in 2011, 145. Somehow I remember that number. In 2011, than, you know, more than anywhere else in the war on terror. All of this happens without the Obama administration even pretending to ask Congress for authorization for war. Like they recognize they can't really shoehorn this into an AUMF from 2001 that already encompasses like nearly everything. But like there's just no plausible connection between Muammar Gaddafi and Al Qaeda. He is one of the people helping the CIA torture people that they say are Al Qaeda. And an interesting consequence of his downfall uh, was that people raided the cap- the filing cabinets of his Mukabarat, and we ended up getting um, a shocking amount of visibility into how closely the CIA and the Libyan intelligence services like worked hand in glove to torture people, um, to include sexual torture, to include sexual exploitation. That is also something that we tend to euphemize when discussing CIA torture, there is a sexual element of it throughout everything. And you just think about the history of how gendered war violence is and how sexual humiliation, it's always there. It's there, you fucking see it in Abu Ghraib. You see it in Guantanamo where interrogators um, are talk are, are using like ink that they wanna tell people is, wanna make people believe is menstrual blood um, to smear on them. Um, and humiliate them not just sexually but spiritually, that they take naked photographs of the people in their custody for renditions, um, that these are considered proof-of-life photographs. So essentially, if someone dies in the custody of you know the Libyans or the Syrians or the Pakistanis or whatever, the CIA has like a nude saying, well, they were alive in my custody. Um, and that happens to women as well as men. It happens to children as well as adults. That is the CIA in the sexual exploitation business. And I don't know how else to, to say it. Um, that was quite a rant. You can put that wherever you think that belongs. But about Libya ends up being totally destabilized. Um, the United States across the next 10 years will fight occasional like months long campaigns in Libya, like long after Benghazi, the United States. I got this aspect of my Libya war reporting wrong. And some people on the internet have very maliciously mischaracterized that or they lack reading comprehension skills, but I'm just going to take this opportunity. Among the things that I was writing for Wired Magazine when I was providing what I believe was and what I thought was critical coverage of the Libya war was warning that like 
the only way this concludes, if it's successful, is like Obama leaves troops behind. Because it seemed inconceivable to me that having totally destabilized and toppled the government of Libya, that Obama would do like what he ultimately did and just decide like, okay, peace. We have, we're not going to actually, the lesson of Iraq and Afghanistan is that we don't like immediately leave after destroying this place and leaving nothing in its wake. And the only thing that durably resulted from the Libya war, so I got that wrong, but like people have maliciously misinterpreted that to mean that I was saying that I was wrong and the war was right, which is not what I was saying. I was trying to take some measure of responsibility for like having written months of stories about like, there's gonna be a fucking occupying force here. And then there was no occupying force there. So anyway, um, a little bit of a personal diversion that I appreciate. The only thing durable the United States leaves in Libya, much as we are seeing in Afghanistan, is total destabilization and human misery. This leads to a new phase of the war on terror, one that would intensify very soon with the civil war in Syria, which is a mass uh, outflow across the Mediterranean of migrants, which uh, I think is an excellent segue into, you know, the work that you did, Dan, in all American nativism. And you see first in first in Europe and then in America, this civilizational reaction no longer just to the wars, but to the refugees the wars create. Yep. And Tucker Carlson really twistedly picked up on it and framed it in his own reactionary terms, either last week or the week before, when he said, first we invade them, then they invade us. He gets the dynamic at work in a way that neither establishment liberals nor establishment conservatives do. To quote um, my friend's band, the excellent Baltimore punk band War on Women, you create the refugee, then you hate the refugee. You write, it was often said that Afghanistan was the forgotten war. Somalia could never earn that distinction since no one in the United States had ever paid any attention to it. We also never paid any attention to the fact that the Shabab guerrilla war only existed in the first place because the U.S. backed Ethiopia in overthrowing Somalia's Islamist government. Is it precisely this diffuse and constantly metastasizing quality of the war on terror that makes the war on terror so hard to politically engage with and resist, making it something so complex that it inevitably gets left to the so-called experts and removed from the realm of democratic contestation? Well, remember also that the Somalia war, which is old enough for a quinceanera, is fought almost entirely in secret. This is also the same with the United States' slice of the wars in Yemen. This is fought through drone strikes, special operations forces, quote-unquote military training. And there are, you know, I've reported from Iraq, I've reported from Afghanistan, I've even reported from Guantanamo Bay. I've never reported from Somalia. There are excellent reporters who have. So I don't want to play fake Somalia expert. I'm just looking at this point um, at Somalia from the overall perspective of the war on terror. This is not a place most reporters are familiar with. It's very easy for Western reporters to just like set up a narrative of Somalia as like a kind of permanent basket case out of like racism and ignorance, you know, someone who's done really great on the ground reporting in Somalia um, are uh, the excellent reporters, um, Michelle Shepard and Jeremy Scahill. They have both done pioneering work uh, I'm very grateful for, um, and that shapes my understanding of both. 
there isn't even a pretense of caring about local conditions in Somalia. The fact is that uh, America sees al-Shabaab, as you mentioned, something that could never have existed, taken power, etc., had the United States not backed Ethiopia's fateful 2006 decision to overthrow the Islamic Courts Union. But remember that big debate the American people in Congress had in 2006 over whether we should overthrow the Islamic Courts Union government? I'll never forget it. It was so epic, so long and so detailed, so eloquent did the you know, world's greatest debating body you know, show its splendor. Yeah, none of this happened with any political attention at all. It's viewed as not a new war or a new front in the war. It's viewed as something that generals get to decide for themselves um, for the applicability um, of where uh, the metastasizing, as the word is always um, thrown around, threats are in the war on terror. And then also um, because it's of- just managing the barbaric periphery. And also remember, you know, the geography of this is very important because Somalia is just across the Red Sea from Yemen. So what starts as a CIA and military engagement against what they consider to be like the most buck wild Al Qaeda franchise um, outside of Iraq and Afghanistan, what they call AQAP, Al Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. They see like the ease of resupply, communication, and so forth across the Red Sea into Somalia. Now, what they're really looking at is like the kind of natural economic and social ties between two people separated at the narrowest point of a body of water. But this becomes a glideless path for the military to both export the war into Somalia and have an infrastructure necessary to go about supporting this war. This also leads to an underappreciated historical circumstance, which is creation for the first time of an enduring presence for the United States military on the African continent. This didn't happen before the war on terror. Um, And now it is in places like Abidjan um, in Niger, as well as Camp Lamontier in Djibouti. And a real untold story of the war on terror is something that I have a great ambition uh, to tell, but like just frankly don't have the chops right now for is that like for 20 years, um, as it grew exceptionally repressive, the United States through counterterrorism funding, like kind of sponsored and recreated the internal security apparatus of of Kenya, which has become a very repressive entity um, that the United States is responsible for in the way that we understand, you know, what the school of the Americas was and its importance in shaping overwhelmingly bloody repression during the dirty wars um, of the 1980s. No word better encapsulates Obama's war on terror, perhaps, than drone. You write, quote, drone strikes were more than just the centerpiece of Obama's counterterrorism strategy. They represented how he saw the war on terror, not as something to end, but something to reorient. What did the rise of the drone war do to the war on terror in terms of the fundamental terms on which the war was being waged and in terms of the people, of course, on the other end? of the U.S.'s Hellfire missiles. This was supposed to be so targeted, such an important piece of Obama's making the war on terror sustainable. But was it either targeted or sustainable in terms of its human or geopolitical consequences? 
two things I want to reference. First, everyone listening to this podcast, I encourage you to read the writings from prison to the judge in his case of the drone whistleblower, Daniel Hamm, in which he talks about his firsthand experience of the casual ways that Americans were allowed to kill people with drone strikes. Second, in the book, I tell the story of a young man named Fahim Qureshi, who to me is the drone war. Fahim Qureshi is a 13-year-old boy living in tribal Pakistan who is excited to attend uh, a large family gathering on behalf of a relative who's just returned from a successful business trip to the United Arab Emirates. And this gathering is held in his compound, uh, in his family compound, a village called Ziraki. He gets kind of bored during the festivities. He'd you know, rather be out with the other kids playing. And then the first drone strike of Barack Obama's presidency sets him on fire, makes him lose an eye, and forces him into a coma for 40 days. And when he wakes up from that coma, he learns that most of his senior male relatives have been killed in the strike. And that when he can get out of the hospital, he needs, at 13 years old, to be one of his family's like primary breadwinners. And throughout the course of uh, his life, he tried at every vantage to get both Pakistani authorities, tribal authorities, and the United States embassy to admit what they had done to him, to admit that the United States had carried out a strike that maimed him that killed his relatives and that they were responsible for this and took responsibility for it. He wanted a public acknowledgement that he never got. What he got instead was a bag full of cash that was supposed to be blood money and also hush money. And I asked him what he thought of Barack Obama and what he thought of the drone strikes. And he said, look, I don't deny it. There are going to be some people who are like legitimately dangerous people who the drones have killed. But that's not mostly who they kill. They kill people like me. They kill people at bakeries. They kill people at funerals. They kill people at business gatherings that look to ignorant Americans like, you know, terror cell accumulations because the rules of the drone strikes, the the rules that are supposed to be what take this phase of the war on terror from out of the bloodthirst of the Bush administration and make in the image of the rational Barack Obama and his technocratic appointees is this rigor of process, this discernment that through the appropriate input of attorneys, intelligence officials, military officers, and senior political figures, what distinguishes Um, a righteous target from a questionable one. And the answers in practice turn out to be that these processes allow for the violent maiming of people like Fahim Qureshi. And I think that ought to entirely destabilize uh, the narrative that uh, the Obama administration put forward for the drone strikes, that this is a calibrated tool What it is, is a flimsy fucking airframe carrying what amounts to, in the U.S. arsenal, a small munition that weighs about 100 pounds. It's originally an anti-tank missile. It's used as an air-to-ground missile. And the mechanisms 
for carrying out drone strikes in a lot of cases don't require positive identification of someone. Just they patterns of life. Patterns of life. Uh, people, you know, who are not considered people, but considered what the military calls military aged males, basically people from the age of like 16 to 50, some, you know, early 50s, who, you know, might be seen carrying rifles in their trucks or who might be seen, you know, attending gatherings with other people who have weapons and so on. The rules allowed the CIA to kill those people. It didn't need to know who they were. This is one of the, so the, the euphemism the CIA constructs for this is on par with calling torture enhanced interrogation. It calls it targeted killing. By use of the airframe itself and by use of the weapon the airframe can carry, there is not as much, relatively speaking, destructive potential. But if you use it in, say, an urban environment, as we just saw in Kabul, masonry is not going to stand up to a hundred pound you know, missile. I got a cache of photos uh, when I worked for Wired of the aftermath of drone strikes. And like you, you really see the way in which like when housing is constructed for, this is surely not the right architectural term, but for lack of a better term, like duplex style, you know, when houses are connected, you collapse one of those houses, the rest of the walls are going down too. And everyone who's there is going to die. They would do things like what they call double tap strikes, where they would kill people and then kill attendees of their funerals. This was authorized in the rules of what became known under Barack Obama as the disposition matrix, um, which was a mechanism by which uh, intelligent and sensible and humane technocrats throttled who half a world away lived and died without knowing who they were in many cases. And not only are these strikes not targeted in terms of who they kill, which they're obviously not, they're also not targeted at all in geopolitical terms. If you just look at what the drone war has done to Pakistani politics, it has certainly not decreased the power of reactionary Islamists there. No, and the war on terror, Obama's um, stewardship of it is no exception. It doesn't provide like mechanisms for its own resolution. It only provides mechanisms for its own perpetuation. And politically, these things are considered you know, indistinct, that the only measure of success in the war on terror is the fact of continuing to fight it, because ceasing to fight it is admitting failure. And uh, we see a whole lot of that series of assumptions in uh, the way a lot of the media has reacted to the Afghanistan troop withdrawal. The, the drone war is a way to make the war on terror something that like flies at 10,000 feet um, instead of 30,000. In Obama's mind, like I cut this out of the book because it became like too weird and indulgent, but like Obama, like in his language about drones and his aides language about drones and so forth, thinks of the drone and portrays the drone as a kind of guillotine that the only people it kills are those who very specifically have been targeted. And that's just simply never true. That's just never been true. It's, it's, it's an extremely manipulative framework, and it's defined in contradistinction to large, ponderous ground wars that it's said by uh, 
John Brennan, who's uh, Obama's most important counterterrorism aide, the eventually CIA director, that the drones are your alternative to, you know, these these awful, destructive ground campaigns that provide just enough counterterrorism um, to ultimately be sustainable. Uh, Leon Panetta, who's Brennan's, who's one of Brennan's predecessors at the CIA, uh, famously calls the drones the only game in town. And ultimately, when you look at what the drone war is in practice, among the largest rationales for drone usage, even in Pakistan, is force protection in Afghanistan. So these are not things that in practice are remotely in contradistinction. They're adjuncts of one another. It's a kind of crazy thing in American life more generally that airstrikes are considered not war, that airstrikes are not part of a continuum of military action, but substitutes for it. Yeah, they're not war because because U.S. troops aren't so much at risk. That's how we now describe whether or not we're at war. All this, I remind you, because of the United States experiencing one airstrike 20 years ago. In addition, you write, quote, the drone strikes bound Obama in the security state. And that meant that Obama's bond made it impossible, you write, that torturers would ever be brought to justice. Indeed, under Obama, the CIA went so far as to spy on their Senate overseers while those Senate overseers were investigating CIA torture. And Obama's CIA also actively propagated the lie that torture, quote unquote, worked, collaborating with the makers of the film Zero Dark Thirty, which, amongst other things, told the lie that torture led to finding bin Laden. Obama once said, quote, we tortured some folks, but it's important for us not to feel too sanctimonious in retrospect. How did justice for such terrible crimes, crimes that not only include the 119 minimum people who were disappeared into CIA black sites, but the perhaps many, many more never to be fully accounted for number of people who were subject to extraordinary rendition. How does that in Obama's formulation become sanctimony? Once Obama opts for a less conspicuous war on terror, the mechanism he is going to rely on by necessity is the CIA. He is at that point entirely unequipped by fact of interest to hold the CIA accountable for torture. Even though Obama, aside from the Iraq war, torture is the thing about the war on terror that Obama most loathes. And on his second day in office, like signs an executive, issues an executive order uh, to prohibit, um, however incompletely. This was a fateful decision. This is basically like saying, because this is how it acted in practice, that like, in order to make sure that more Fahim Qureshis are maimed and killed, you know, I'm thinking of the meme like, I give you, you give me. I give you the maiming and killing of people like Fahim Qureshi in places like Pakistan, Libya, Somalia, Yemen, Afghanistan, Iraq, and so forth. You give me total impunity uh, for having tortured those people a couple years ago. And that's how it works. And it, it, it forces ever more circumstance. My interpretation of that is Obama is like talking to himself, that Obama knows how odious and reprehensible um, what he's saying and doing is and responds by, you know, functionally lashing out 
at everyone who can see how like ethically disgusting this circumstance is. Don't feel so sanctimonious about people torturing, you know, other people. You you would think that remember when Obama did the the beer summit between Skip Gates and the cop who was arresting him on his own porch? Like Obama would like invite Abdul Rahim Nashiri to like, you know, have a non-alcoholic beverage with Gina Haspel and they could talk through their disputes and, you know, reminisce about old times. Haspel ran a black site where Nashiri was tortured in the first phase of his torture. Anyway, this is an exceptionally faithful decision by Barack Obama. It ensures there will never be any accountability or accountability for engaging in clear obstruction of justice by destroying, destroying evidence of torture. Also something literally Gina Haspel did, a future CIA director did. And when it's time for Haspel, um, really, honestly, this was like just, you know, an absolutely ethically disgusting and typically so um, move by, um, by Donald Trump that was still like nevertheless an encapsulation of like the political talents that he does possess. While the John Brennan's, Jim Clapper's, um, and Michael Hayden's of the world are like railing against Donald Trump at every opportunity, they call a truce because Donald Trump has nominated Gina Haspel to be CIA director, this torturer. And they're all like enthusiastic about that because they Another know- Another adult her. in the room. Yeah, a, a serious adult in the room, an adult who we would subsequently learn uh, was in favor of assassinating Qasem Soleimani and risking a war with Iran. But they stop and they show their support for this wise decision. They say, what, do you want you know, Tom Cotton to be CIA director? This is something I have heard from such people directly. And among the people who support the nomination of this torturer to run the CIA is Avril Haines who is the most restrictionist of Obama's aides when it comes to drone strikes. But as deputy CIA director, she ensures that after um, they spy on uh, the Senate torture investigators, that there's not going to be any accountability. She lines up to support Gina Haspel. I'm Aziz Rana, and you're listening to The Dig, a great place for analysis about where we are, how we got here, and what can be done. It's my favorite podcast, and you can support it at patreon.com. This episode of The Dig, like every episode of The Dig, is produced in partnership with Jacobin Magazine. Jacobin is an incredible publication, and you've probably seen a lot of what they've published online. But they also have a really beautiful print magazine. It comes out quarterly and has well over 100 pages packed with illustrations, infographics, and some of the best graphic design in the country. Dig listeners can join 50,000 Jacobin subscribers developing socialist political thought and debate for just $15 a year. $15 gets you an entire year of Jacobin in print and access to the magazine's entire back catalog. If you've never subscribed to Jacobin before, you can access this deal by going to bit.ly slash digjacobin all lowercase. That's bit.ly slash dig Jacobin, B-I-T dot L-Y, dig Jacobin, all lowercase. 
torture wasn't the only so-called excess of the war on terror that Obama ended up going along with. There was also, of course, mass surveillance. And the Snowden revelations were huge news in 2013. But did they lead to any meaningful curbs on NSA surveillance under Obama? Because Snowden's greatest fear, you write, was, quote, that nothing will change. Was his fear misplaced? His fears were exceptionally prescient and targeted in the right area. I was lucky enough to be part of the reporting team at The Guardian on the Edward Snowden surveillance revelations. And this was the professional accomplishment I'll be proudest of forever. That really was a moment in which we got the closest thing to the truth about the war on terror I think we've ever gotten. We saw an apparatus of surveillance constructed in great detail, in mundane, very often, I can't tell you how difficult it was at times to like understand, let alone verify aspects of these of these stories, because the NSA speaks to itself in like a very particular um, and technical argo. Ultimately, the NSA had the support of all aspects of the political system that mattered. The only ask, like the courts continued to acquiesce to a tremendous amount of collection under what's called Section 702. Ultimately, the intelligence agencies, the White House and Congress were willing to jettison the program that attracted, it was our first story at The Guardian, that attracted the greatest domestic outcry, in part because it was just so blatantly illegal and unconstitutional the domestic collection of all Americans' phone data. The trouble was, is because of the development of communications, um, the NSA doesn't really need, and the same thing with the FBI, doesn't really need a whole lot of phone data. A far richer data set is provided by collecting um, everyone's internet usage by, you know, in particular, their um, international email metadata, their, you know, international voice over internet protocol uh, conversations, their social media usage, uh, which they have visibility into through a program called PRISM. And down the line, the architecture of 21st century capitalism is a panopticon. Uh, the Harvard professor emerita, uh, Shoshana Zuboff, very aptly and very, um, succinctly uh, terms this surveillance capitalism in which uh, our internet usage is commodified at a point before we recognize that happens. Uh, We have absolutely no rights over uh, the commodification of that data or the exploitation of it. It has no value individually, only value um, as you increase it um, in aggregation and scale. And then at that point, because this is just how you know, Home Depot is also a data company, right? Like this is just the way we, the way capitalism operates now. The NSA doesn't need to construct a separate panopticon. It needs to tap into the panopticons that already exist. And in this way, NSA bulk surveillance, surveillance that occurs outside of any meaningful, rigorous conception of the Fourth Amendment, it happens as an adjunct of contemporary economic activity. That was like the last thing the NSA is ever going to get rid of. It is also the thing that like 
in a very comical moment in early 2018 when it has to go up for uh, renewal as a voting, as when, when the bill to reauthorize it has to go up for renewal, Donald Trump, who's like inveighing against the surveillance aspects of the government because now they target him, his buddies and their criminality. He goes like, yeah, Section 702, that's got to go. Everyone vote against it. And like a couple hours later, like someone whispers the right thing into his ear. And it's like, I mean, everyone vote for it. I have been assured that this isn't surveillance on Americans. This is surveillance on bad guys overseas. I've been assured that Carter Page will be left alone. Exactly. And like, that is also the story um, of Trump's real relationship with surveillance, which is that like surveillance against him is an affront to the Constitution. Surveillance against everyone else is a far different story. That is not to say that unconstitutional surveillance is inevitable and uh, will continue. I don't mean to say any aspect of the war on terror will continue, is inevitable, is permanent. I refuse to accept that uh, free people do not have a political choice in this, that we can't exercise um, through organizing sufficient pressure on politicians uh, to force them into a binary choice between maintaining the war on terror and maintaining political power. I believe that world is always possible. And it is just a recognition of how deeply embedded these structures are that points to how great the challenge is and how fierce the opposition, even just you know through sheer inertia, um, will mount against an effort to truly abolish the war on terror. But abolition of the war on terror, I'm answering a question you haven't asked me, um, is possible. The rise of ISIS obviously was a big turning point for the war on terror. And very revealingly, it was more blamed on Obama's partial withdrawal from Iraq rather than on the initial invasion of Iraq, which is just how lessons don't get learned in the war on terror. You write, quote, conservatives unwilling to propose outright reinvasion instead reached for a framework for understanding ISIS that would double as an indictment of Obama being too weak to fight it. The civilizational subtext of the war on terror now became explicit. How did the emergence of ISIS impact the whole trajectory of the war on terror politics, both specifically in terms of the politics around the war on terror and how the war on terror was increasingly continuing to define and deform American politics? This is a crucial moment that I think has often too soon to be frequently historically contextualized, but too distant for proper remembrance. But by the terms of the war on terror, the rise of ISIS shows that everything has failed. This is the the thing that just cannot possibly happen and maintain an image of success or really particularly amongst like technocrats who by na- by at this point are operating the war on terror, competence. And that's really a dangerous place to be in um, from within the security state. One of the themes that I keep honing in on on the book, because it's a driver of a lot of this, is how when these disasters happen, the political classes who support them uh, push as much blame as possible on the security state. So the security state is operating politically on a back foot in important ways that drive its impulses 
basically its interests accordingly are always going to be to either maintain or escalate. Only in extremely rare cases will it will it accept, you know, some kind of retrenchment. Here's something really unthinkable has happened with the rise of ISIS. You have essentially not just a conquering state forged out of the ashes of both uh, the Iraq occupation and the Syrian civil war, but you have it like by its own terms, literally take bulldozers to borders drawn by Westerners. Like there's a famous ISIS video where they destroy the berms that separate Iraq and Syria and call it the end of Sykes-Picot, which is a reference to the post-World War I British-French diplomatic entente to split up the Ottoman Empire. And yet, by the terms of the war on terror, the rise of ISIS was never going to be understood or accepted as the complete collapse of this entire approach. It only, this is a theme I trace throughout the book as well, provides an impulse to re-escalate the exact same things that led to this circumstance. To your point about ISIS and Iraq and the Iraq war and and the calamity that, you know, was now revealed, what's important to remember is that almost as as like a a social compromise amongst um, the national security sides of elite politics, they settle on this narrative that like the surge that David Petraeus implements has basically won the Iraq war. It's turned everything around. Everything now is okay. And you should never withdraw from Iraq because otherwise things will no longer be okay. But at that point, because, you know, in a narrative particularly pushed by John McCain as he runs for president, thinking that this is going to be a kind of knockout blow against Obama, because like, this is how the war on terror has worked, you know, thus far, this is how Bush beat Kerry. And instead, like Obama, who's giving a root and branch critique of the Iraq war, swats it aside. Obama takes a lot of the figures from the surge, who basically make for the first time in the war on terror, the enterprise seem technocratic instead of like Bush era theological. It it is a, a kind of mode of operation that Obama is just like very comfortable with and like according to everything ever written about Obama, like this is just sort of how he's comfortable working. So even though Obama takes an entirely different view of the Iraq war and its relationship to sustained disaster in the Middle East, by virtue of having a lot of these figures in and around his administration, it helps the the very socially appealing narrative, basically a, a kind of social truce that permits people who back the war to kind of like have their reputations sufficiently restored, you know, washed in uh, the very literal blood of the surge. And so at this point, particularly now that Obama contradicts their advice, which is now seen again to be technocratic and not theological, and withdraws from Iraq, withdraws with an enormous asterisk that if you really want to get into, we can get into. But the point being is that, you know, the war had been won. Obama had unwisely disengaged from it, never mind the contradiction between those two terms. And now this like absolute calamity is is underway, not just in Syria, where it was believed like 
the chaos could be kind of cauterized, but now like it conquered Mosul. I've been to Mosul. I went to Mosul in March of 2007, the beginning of the surge. And for a very brief moment, thankfully, while I was there, it was it, it was like the quietest big city in Iraq. And now 2000, in June of 2014, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi is like declaring the caliphate, like something that like everyone in like jihadist circles, like understood as like an exceptionally distant goal, even by the terms of this thing. Like no one kind of, you know, is looking for like a conqueror's caliphate. Like I had an amazing, along with um, some excellent colleagues of mine, like fascinating reporting that I did um, with some excellent journalists, my friends, my friends, Shiv Malik, Moose Khalili, um, and Ali Yunus as well. They, I was just, you know, happy to be along for the ride on this one. They got a chance to interview some of the leading lights of global, like, jihadist theological discourse. In particular, the man who was a kind of spiritual mentor um, in Jordanian prisons to Abu Musab al-Zarqawi, who starts al-Qaeda in Iraq. And as well, like, one of the most, like, feared preachers in Britain, ultimately deported, Abu Qatada. And these guys were like talking about ISIS themselves as a sheer calamity. That like, they their revolution was glorious. Uh, it was so nobly aimed in order to actually solve the problem afflicting Arab and broader Muslim politics, that is the United States. Uh, it had the charismatic figure. The strategy was correct. And now these psychotic thugs are ruining everything by sheer nihilistic brutality. Like these are people who devoted their entire lives to making violence holy. And then these theologically illiterate gangster delinquents come about and hijack their revolution. I was once able to, shortly after the rise of ISIS, speak with someone who had been, let's say, assume for a moment that Al-Qaeda has like an American-style military hierarchy. Like in the chain of command, this guy would have been like an ISIS, like, second lieutenant, like at best. But I had a chance to talk to him, um, which was, uh, as you can imagine, for, you know, someone who does the kind of reporting I do, like a really unique and exciting circumstance. I am making no excuses uh, for what this guy did, or um, nor am I like confirming anything that this guy may have been accused of. But like in describing I asked him basically just the, give me from your perspective the difference between like what you did as a young man and what now it seems thousands of people are flocking to Syria to do as young men. And his answer was that it was a sheer class distinction that Osama bin Laden is a billionaire. The people around that generation of Al Qaeda were people with degrees. Engineers. That's right. And this persisted, like, for, for quite a long time. Like, you know, Anwar al-Laki, like, was, was a college edu- like, was a college graduate. I'm sure, 
I don't honestly know for sure, but it would not surprise me if he had like, you know, doctoral, you know, studies in religion. And someone like Zarqawi, like, has been to prison, was a pimp, is covered in tattoos. Uh, these people, the way I put it in the book, like, they are hardline. They are not orthodox. And this is a very important distinction. And those guys have just, the, the leader of that has just declared itself literally the head of Islam. And, like, you know, I wish I could, like, I've, I've asked like Shiv and Moose, like about like everything about these interviews. And they're just like, it's fucking crazy. Like you get, there is like a kind of inevitable, like people who have been familiar with 20th century left-wing factional disputes. um, And like one side has just like unbelievably like won something that like a certain older guard considers like not just shocking but like disastrous but among like that that was just where my mind went when like hearing about this stuff and there's even like this poignant moment where someone this guy um abu muhammad al-makdisi who is Zarqawi's mentor like someone who is like so al-qaeda that he was denouncing the saudi government when Osama bin Laden was pledging to fight Saddam Hussein for it. That guy says that, like, because of ISIS, he's had reason to now consider 9-11 kind of a mistake. Can you believe that? Like, that was just an incredible thing. In the United States, it is not seen as a refutation of al-Qaeda. And like ISIS like wants to deliver like the killing blow. Because if you remember the dynamic between bin Laden and Zarqawi and like the organizations as they evolve, like bear that that relationship, Al Qaeda is constantly telling Zarqawi's faction that is now ISIS, um, you have to just fucking chill, like stop killing so many people. Remember how this whole thing is about like attacking the Americans and their client regimes, like do that. Like you're not doing, you're murdering a lot of Muslims. You're, and like, you're deciding that this is the time to wage a violent dispute against Shiite Muslims and declare that they are not. In fact, Zarqawi describes them as Safavids. It's fucking weird. In the United States, this is seen as the apotheosis of Al Qaeda. That like ISIS is just like the next thing that Al Qaeda becomes because that's just what Islam does. And never was there going to be a critique accordingly that said, this proves we can't have a fucking war on terror. This proves that this is where wars on terror lead. Instead, the lesson is, this is what happens when you stop fighting a war on terror. And this is a dynamic we are seeing in real time, like in a, in such a, like I keep, you know, having to go back to this 18th Brumaire shit, but we're really seeing that with uh, Biden pulling out of Afghanistan, this being seen, this in this particular case, a, like a human disaster, being seen not as the result of 20 years of failed war, the best time to leave Afghanistan or Iraq for that matter or anywhere down the line 
is always going to be yesterday. The second best time is today. The worst time is tomorrow. And now in the place of like, this is also a circumstance in which like ISIS-K is literally fighting the Taliban. Literally, the United States has coordinated on airstrikes against ISIS-K with the Taliban. And there was definitely no ISIS-K around in the year 2001 in Afghanistan. The whole reason (laughs) there is any kind of ISIS, like Delta, Kappa, Epsilon, whatever, is because the United States decided to invade and occupy Iraq. And that's how all of this began. There was no Al-Qaeda in Iraq until the United States invaded Iraq. And some people, particularly Abu Musab al-Zarqawi, said, I am going to transition my organization into being Al-Qaeda in Iraq. And I'll bet I'll become really soon the most relevant Al-Qaeda franchise that I will control. And that's exactly what happened. And that's a straight line to the conquest of Mosul. This is why the Democrats from Obama on the technocratic model for the war on terror never works, because the problem with the war on terror is so foundational. But the first rule of learning lessons about the war on terror is not learning any lessons that will cause you to reevaluate the basic premises of the war on terror. And you write that these limits of Obama's attempts to tame the war, to make it, as you put it, the sustainable war, those limits really become so clear with his failure to close Guantanamo and deal with the legal status of so-called enemy combatants, a bizarre new legal category created after 9-11 to treat people as neither POWs nor criminal defendants. You write, quote, inertia played a bigger role in keeping Guantanamo open than passion did. The right was fighting against Obama more than it was fighting for Guantanamo. Why did Obama want to close it? How did Republicans respond and how did the entire dynamic, what did that reveal about how war on terror politics were changing? Because how And how did it get to this moment with this overwhelming energy on the right, not so much in favor of the war on terror, but against Obama's move to curb it compared to this profound exhaustion on the center left? So first, the subtext of it for the right explains its utility, which is what better symbol could you have should you be so inclined to wink at birtherism of the foreign secret Muslim letting his terrorist friends out of jail? Like there has just been a presidential campaign in which Sarah Palin as a like really is as direct a proto-Trump figure in Republican national politics after the war on terror as you can come, as you can get, says at every single one of her rallies, some variant on how Obama's friends are howling around with terrorists. I was reading today a copy of the New York Times. And I was really interested to read in there about Barack Obama's friends from Chicago. Turns out, one of his earliest supporters is a man who, according to the New York Times, was a domestic terrorist and part of a group, part of a group that, quote, launched a campaign of bombings that would target the Pentagon and the U.S. Capitol. Man, 
guys who think patriotism is paying higher taxes. Remember, that's what Joe Biden said. Now, this is not a man who sees America as you and I see America. We see America as a force for good in this world. We see an America of exceptionalism. Yes, USA, USA. sees America as imperfect enough to pal around with terrorists who targeted their own country? This, ladies and gentlemen, has nothing to do with the kind of change that anyone can believe in. Not my kids and not your kids. What we believe in is what Ronald Reagan believed in, and that is an America it is a nation of exceptionalism. Palling around with terrorists. Like, this is also, like, going to be said so often in an environment where, like, people are not thinking, you know, Bill Ayers. They're thinking Osama bin Laden. Like, this is a direct nod um, to, to birtherism. This is, this is how birtherism gets laundered, like, into, into discourse. And now, like, within... Three months of Obama's presidency, Mitch McConnell writes a Washington Post op-ed that's just that just says, don't close Guantanamo. And it signals this opposition to Obama that recognizes Guantanamo is, is like actually extremely advantageous territory to fight. Because like here you can test, here you can like wink at that narrative that Obama won't keep you safe because he's your enemy. You can also stoke the embers of the constituency that the right has cultivated where brutality for its own, for like purposes of like permanent vengeance is, is seen kind of as, as, as just, as just simply a, a valuable thing to have. And then Obama describes Obama does like such an unbelievable job of undermining both the Golan himself on Guantanamo that it becomes a little bit difficult to answer the question like why why did you want it closed like you know my my you know first instinct uh, is to answer from like the impressions that I've gotten from talking to the people around him which is that like they recognize that like it's not good to have like an Iwin gulag However, Obama never allows himself to be equipped because he's not a war on terror abolitionist with saying something like that. So he's left saying that Guantanamo Bay, this is the endlessly repeated Obama argument that I, that like throughout, like ever since he started making it, like I've just been poking at because like it, you see why it fails from the start. Guantanamo Bay is a symbol exploited by terrorists for yeah does obama think that the american people especially the right care about what other countries and people in other countries think about the united states (laughs) it's it's an astonishing thing particularly when you remember that 
as part of his like push to close Guantanamo, he like this is like a back channel negotiation that Charlie Savage of the New York Times revealed in his excellent book, Power Wars. Rahm Emanuel and Lindsey Graham, for the better part of a year, are having back channel negotiations in which like they work out a bargain that Obama, to his credit, personally rejects. But the bargain is the Republicans will go along with closing Guantanamo in exchange. Rahm Emanuel agreed to this in exchange for writing some kind of codification in the law that allows for indefinite military detention. Rahm Emanuel agreed to that. So, okay. So he's just trying to get some points on the board. So if, okay. So like, if you have that, what's the point of closing Guantanamo? At that point, when Obama argues publicly, Obama argues publicly that he will keep um, a category of indefinite detention people who he argues in a speech in May of 2009 at the National Archives who are too dangerous to release um, but can't be charged with any Ben Rhodes, in retrospect, according to your book, says, I don't, at the time, I really didn't know who he was referring to, who who qualified as such. Yeah, like he was trying to, like, ultimately, there's a very technocratic answer that gets issued early the following year in which, like, they spell out, in fact, like, how many people are in that category. And it's like over, I think it's like 80 or something like that. It's incredibly large. But among the reasons that Obama like is saying this after being convinced by the military that this is the way it's got to be is because what like they're saying is like, there are shitloads of people at Guantanamo who, if the public, if any court, if any judge knew a, what the United States did to them and B, how little information, how little derogatory information of any true reliability it had on them. That would be like a really damning thing for the United States of America. And like the option at that point is to keep people in cages to spare the United States' reputation. It's entirely deserved one. Um, a thing that it compounds every day that it does that. And Obama also says that he will buy a prison from the state of Illinois. Like uh, Illinois at this point is entirely controlled by Democrats. You know, Obama is the most famous Illinois Democrat and certainly the most powerful. And so like they're willing to sell this like empty correctional center, uh, this prison to the federal government so that the Guantanamo detainees who will either be in this category of indefinite detention or who are facing a military tribunal, that's where they'll go. And Obama spends like significant capital politically arguing a simply absurd case that that is somehow preferable to Guantanamo. Like immediately every Guantanamo watcher, every human rights group and so on, um, like just calls it Gitmo North. And at that point, Mitch McConnell says something that kind of unfortunately makes sense which is that like, okay, if you're going to do this and like it would cost you this much money to buy it from Illinois, why not just keep Guantanamo? Like we're not paying for that. In terms of the Republican counterattack on Obama's initial proposal to close Guantanamo, they so emphasize the danger of relocating these people into the United States. And it's one of those situations where the sort of externally focused Islamophobia 
of the early war on terror combines with nativism and the idea that the danger is people who are here. It's people who are there are coming here. Dangerous people. He is opening up and our shores. Liberals are helping bring people. the dangerous people here. People who, like college Sheikh Mohammed, have proven records. Obviously, most of this is not, in fact, applicable um, to the overwhelming majority of people in Guantanamo, but like among them definitely would be college Sheikh Mohammed, who at that point, Obama decides to charge in federal court. Now, also keep in mind that like Obama gives this whole speech where he announces like, okay, so I'm keeping indefinite detention, but I want to close Guantanamo. Also, I'm keeping military commissions for a lot of the people in Guantanamo. But my preference is to charge people um, uh, criminally in federal courts uh, with terrorism charges. And like you kind of just think to yourself, like, what? Why? Like, if you're keeping all of that, how in the world would like you opt for actually charging these people? Like all of the bureaucratic incentives will run toward like particularly when you are no longer president, like doing so using the military. Obama also shows that he like will just like accept a lot of loss on this very early on. So this is really something that anyone who wanted, any New Yorker who ever wanted closure for 9-11 should forever blame Michael Bloomberg and Ray Kelly for, as well as the capital-controlled community boards of lower Manhattan because they saw this as first Bloomberg entirely reverses himself. Bloomberg is for the 9-11 trial before he's against it. It's the cops and capital that turn against it because they consider it like supremely disruptive. It's an enormous hassle. They start fear mongering about like, what if there's a terrorist attack to break it? Like it's a fucking dark night movie, like to, you know, break their buddies out. Like the whole thing is nonsense. Like, this is also at a time when a literal senior CIA official has just transformed the NYPD's intelligence unit, like, in the image of the CIA, like a truly lawless thing. And that carries the day. And Obama just backs down once it's clear that the power structure in New York City won't accept a 9-11 trial. Fuck you, Mike Bloomberg. Fuck you, Ray Kelly. Fuck every member of those community boards who went along with that. This was part two of the Diggs three-part series on the War on Terror with Spencer Ackerman. Look out for part three, which will cover the war on terror under Trump and Biden later this week. Spencer Ackerman is the author of Reign of Terror, How the 9-11 Era Destabilized America and Produced Trump. A Pulitzer Prize and National Magazine-winning reporter, he currently writes the Forever Wars newsletter on Substack, which I'll link to in the show notes. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said after noting that, but unheroic though bourgeois society is, it nevertheless needed heroism, sacrifice, terror, civil war, and national wars to bring it into being. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We're posting new episodes every week. 
The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. The Dig is recorded at WBRU in Providence. Our communications coordinator is Tamuz Frankel. Our senior advisor is Thea Riofrancos. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, same on Facebook. And please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe if you don't subscribe already. And if it's on iTunes or another such platform, please also leave us a nice review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners, which is a good thing. So does spreading the word to your friends. Please do make propaganda for us, and please find us at patreon.com and make a monthly contribution to keep this podcast up and running strong. Even a few bucks is huge. 